and my name is Ian, by the way, if we haven't yet met. I'm one of the elders here, um, and maybe we can chat at the end if you are a visitor. Or if you're not a visitor, I'm happy to talk to you as well. <laughs> but if you haven't been with us, we have been going through uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, and we are in chapter 4 now. And so far, Paul has taken us through some important doctrine so far. It's going well this morning. Um, we've looked at the doctrine of salvation. We've looked at the doctrine of the church. How we're, we're not just saved to escape hell, uh, but in order that God may present a people. A people that will be the wonder of the world. And what we've been reading recently as well is a challenge to the modern mind, which will continue again this morning. That we should lift from our individualistic ways in the modern world to be thinking of ourselves as part of the church, as members of the body of Christ. Adam helpfully last week challenged us to consider our maturity. That as children... We kind of let parents do most things for us. And as we grow and we become more independent, we start to do things for ourselves, but also to contribute to the house. And if we want to grow in maturity, we are to play our part in the body. He challenged to, about how we've got gaps in different teams, like the kids' team and the worship team. Um, and I just wanted to remind you, really, that kids' work is not a secondary Thing that we do on Sunday. It's not of secondary importance, and you know, what happens up here is the real important stuff. I myself have three children and have served on the kids' work for a number of years. Currently, I'm not, but um, I might need to go back to it because we are struggling at the moment. So if you do have children, please uh, sign up for that. But now, as we move into chapter 4, we're looking from 17 to 32 today. Paul is switching and he's moving on to matters of personal purity or conduct and behavior. And what we're going to read today could actually quite possibly be some of the most offensive to the unbeliever. And if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this may offend you. But remember, these are not my words. They're the Apostle Paul's words. And we're going to break this up into sections. So we're going to start from chapter 4, verse 17 to 19. And what we're looking at this morning is the old life and the new life. So let's go from 17 to 19. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And the first instruction here from Paul is that we should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So what does that mean? Considering what we've previously learned about Jews and Gentiles being one, what, what does this mean? Well, he is awakening old and new believers alike to the fact that we are entirely new creations. 
We are new creatures. And he's connecting the doctrine that we've previously learned to personal practice. So this is what's happened in chapter 1 to 3. Every spiritual blessing, received inheritance. He talks about Christ being raised from the dead, received grace through faith, brought near by the blood of Christ. We were aliens and strangers. Now we are fellow citizens, reconciled to God. We're one new man in Christ, members of the same body, the glorious church. And Paul is saying, now in light of all of that, this is how we're to live. And we see later in the passage today, very practical, clear illustrations. At the end of this section as well, he then goes back to doctrine for a bit about not grieving the Holy Spirit. But now we are to move into application. And scripture, doctrine, should always be applied to life. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was initially put off by Bible study. I thought it was purely academic. But it is to be applied to life. And the word should speak to us, challenge us, change us, and encourage us. There's no point studying really hard, learning you know, Hebrew and Greek, if it doesn't shape your heart and mind. Christianity is a life to be lived, not a philosophy to think out. So, as we move into this, we must be consistent as to live out our lives, lives uh, behaving the same on the outside of church as we do on the inside of church on a Sunday. We mustn't put on false clothes when we come in here on a Sunday morning. I mean, any clothes is preferable, but, <laughs> but we mustn't come in and pretend we're holy and full of joy when the rest of the week we're miserable and full of sin. The Christian life is one, and we are one new man. So when Paul is referencing Gentiles here, he's referring to anyone outside of Christ who does not call themselves a Christian. And it is quite insulting to the unbeliever. Paul says their minds are darkened, their lives are futile, meaningless, and empty. So that's encouraging, isn't it? And we often talk, actually, about... I've heard Christians talk about not judging people. And there is a right way to do that, not judge people. And I've heard that the expression that we're all on a journey. Have you heard that? We're all on a journey. But I think you can tell if there is a truly regenerate heart in a person. We start to see change. A Christian is not merely a person who has decided to be a little more moral or decided to come to church. That is not a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is that they have been born again. We are given a new nature, a new creation. We are altogether different from before. There are things that I did before I was a Christian that would now be unthinkable for me to engage with. And to tell if someone has changed from the inside out, there would be noticeable change in thoughts, attitudes, and behavior. We'll get more into this later, but the outward is a reflection of the inward. 
And when Paul says, walk as the, don't walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their mind, this walk means life. And the NIV says, don't live as the Gentiles live. So the walk means whole life. Our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes. Now, um, we've been reading, as we study, as elders, we take this very seriously, the Word of God, and we've been studying, and particularly Adam and I read and listen to quite a lot of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says this, the walk, Martin Lloyd-Jones was the minister of the Westminster Chapel in the 1950s and 60s, he says the walk, as used in Scripture, means the whole of a man's life, inward and outward, and we must remember that our walk is not confined to the outward. It involves the inward also. According to the whole argument, what determines the outward is the inward. A man is as he thinks, and his walk in life tells you what he is thinking, because his walk, his life, is an expression of his philosophy. So the inward, the thoughts of a person, often reflect what's going on on the, on the outside. And I, I actually heard this a few years ago. We were talking about something different, talking about worship. But it's often the case of what is happening on the outside is often a sign of what is happening on the inside. So if a person is not engaged in worship, arms crossed, barely singing, sitting down most of the time, it might be a sign that they've got some stuff going on in their life, but it also might be a sign that they don't understand the glorious riches and forgiveness and the wonder of Christ. I heard that from the great prophet Dave from the tribe of the Gadites. <laughs> Dave Gad. He probably doesn't remember, but we had that conversation many years ago. So the walk means everything. And then he says to the unbeliever, the unregenerated person is futile in mind. Futile in their thinking. It's, of course, very similar to what Paul says in Romans 1. 18 to 32, um, but we're looking at 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we only have to look at what is happening in the world right now to see the utter futility of modern-day thinking. And people have taken on morality without godliness. And it used to be morality would come out of godliness. People don't want anything now to do, though, with the supernatural or believe in miracles. Or we don't want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. People want Jesus as the kind of in the moral teacher guide box rather than saviour and lord of our life box. Now the modern mind is not being shaped by the word of God. And it seems to be getting people in all sorts of mess and confusion. So despite all this apparent freedom... To be whoever you want to be, there seems to be more depression and anxiety than ever recorded before. The mind has been sucked into thinking that this world is all about me, me, me. And whether you realize it or not, your mind is being trained by the world. 
Our thinking, our thought life needs to be trained. It needs to be renewed and washed in the Word of God. We need to think biblically. Now, if you believe the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, it should rightly challenge you and not just to be a nice person. Jesus is not after a nice group of people. Did you know that? He is after a kingdom and a people that will put him first. He's not after moral people. He's after followers. Disciples that are willing to die to self. That when they read the word of God, they don't change it to suit their own needs or opinions. They say, Lord, help me. Help me understand. Help me believe. Terry Virgo was with us a few weeks ago. The founder and father of New Frontiers. And he, he mentioned about our worldviews, how our worldview needs to be a biblical worldview. Not one that doesn't offend people. Well, you, you might think, well, I, I'm not sure how inclusive that is. Well, God is God, and he knows what is right. He is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, all-seeing, all-knowing. And it requires a humility to say, I don't like this, but I'm going to line up, Lord, with your word. If we do not let the word of God shape us, but we try to shape it, we are really making God in our own image. We want a God who fits into our own views and opinions. But Jesus doesn't just want to be our saviour. Do you know that? He wants to be our Lord. He wants us to surrender everything, our views, everything. He wants us to grow up into maturity, like Adam looked at last week. And this, to help us do that, it, it, we submit to the authority, two unpopular words today as well, submit and authority to the authority of Christ to not be childish, not be blown around by every wind of doctrine. What's the latest YouTuber saying this week about this particular doctrine? And I believe what the word says. Believe that you are loved and accepted into the family of God, that he has a purpose for your life, that he loves you and he wants to conform you into the image of his son. And life, Paul says, outside of Christ is fruitless, meaningless, futile. But, you might say, many people have a meaningful life, don't they, outside of church? And we can, if that is true, if people do that with, in a life without God, we think finding meaning in love or relationships or careers, trying to make a difference... If that is the view and there is no God, ultimately everything will get taken away from us. We will lose the ones we love eventually. Nobody will remember what you did in a few years from now. And eventually everything that you think made life meaningful will be taken away. And that is the view if there is no God. It's only the realisation that life without God is meaningless, meaningless and fruitless, plus the realisation that we've been given over, 
People outside of Christ think they're free to choose to live the life that they wish to live. But actually, we are all driven by or controlled by the need to prove ourselves or fears. And modern people think they're free, free to choose. But Paul says they are darkened in their understanding. And when you begin to see that there are things in your life that you really wish you didn't do or or you really don't have that much control, you start to realize your need for God. I want to be ruled by a master that won't enslave me. And right now we are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. One leads to freedom, the other leads to death. It's like asking a fish to describe water. Or write a paper on water. I haven't completely lost my mind. This is an illustration, okay? Just bear with me. A fish would say, well, what's water? And most people who need to make this decision can't make the decision because they can't see the type of life that they're actually living. So how how do we move from one life to the other? And Paul helps us in this next section. So from 20 to 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true and righteousness and holiness. In true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says we've become blind to the way we're living. Hearts are hardened, fallen into all sorts of sexual immorality. The unbeliever is completely blind to ungodliness. But now, as for you, the believer, he says, that is not the way you have learnt Christ. You need to put on your new self. So what, what does this mean to put on and put off? So we make promises as we get married at the wedding. There's promises before God. And I don't think you fully understand all of the promises that you're making at that moment. But you work them out as you go through life together. But it's a decision. You choose to marry. First you weren't, now you are married. And it's a one-time decision, but also a daily conscious commitment not to be driven by desire or impulse, but a daily putting on of our new selves, heading in a new direction. The change then happens to you from the inside out. Paul doesn't say put off old behavior and put on new behavior. That's not what he's saying here. You decide to follow Christ and choose to submit to his ways. And there is a list of what maybe we shouldn't, what shouldn't, shouldn't happen in your life at the end of this section. But Paul is not letting us get to verses 25 to 32 before we go through 20 to 24. He's talking about a whole new self. Becoming a Christian is being something before doing something. Not just how you live, but who you are. 
And the mistake that people make is that Christianity is a list of morals on how to live. Morality is not Christianity. And we get asked these questions. Will, will I have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Will I have to think about what I do with my money? Will I have to forgive that person? While that is true, they are the wrong questions. Because you have to change, not in your own effort, but it's about becoming a new person before a new set of behaviours. Because also morality views have changed in the, in the last, 20, in last two or three decades. Because what has happened, actually, people have put a morality and not a new person. 30 years ago, growing up, the common view was certain things were wrong. But now social pressures have gone. People feel free to do what they want. But to change on the inside, you need a whole new set of motives. Why does it matter if we're doing the right thing? You know, we try to shape our kids and we want them to tell the truth. And often we will parent through either fear or pride. We will say, you mustn't do that or you'll be in trouble. Or we are not those type of people. We tell the truth in this house. They are lines that I've said myself as well, by the way. But in the end, with that perspective, it's about you, not about the person it's affecting or God. In the end, it's about self-preservation. So as an example, you could have two people Two people sitting next to each other in church, both reading the Bible, both coming to church, trying to live a wholesome life, but both doing it for entirely different reasons. One guy is reading his Bible, praying as often as he can, because if he doesn't, he's going to hell. And, you know, he doesn't live like others. He's not as bad as the other people. But the other person is doing it purely out of love and gratitude receiving salvation by grace to be in a relationship with their saviour. And when we come to Christ, to be changed from the inside out is to be born again. It's where we get our first and only identity. That it starts to affect the rest of our lives. As an example, as well, you could have two guys going for the same job. Let's assume they're the two, same two guys sitting next to each other in church. One of them is hopeful that he gets the job and thinks it will be a great thing. While the other guy is putting everything into it. He's shaping his whole life towards it. This is all he wants. But both get turned down for the job. One guy is disappointed and moves on with his life. But the other guy is absolutely devastated. He cannot move on. He struggles to pick himself up. What's the difference between the two? Well, one guy knows that this isn't what shapes his life and gives him his identity. The other guy was after the job and the career to give him his meaning and identity. The first guy knows that he's rooted in Christ. God is for him, not against him. And if he has Jesus, that is enough. So putting off and putting on. Morality is about being nice. Christianity is not being about being nice, it's about being new. Colossians says in 3, 15 to 16, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, nice people are just nice. New people are grown when the word dwells within them and takes root. So how are you doing? Are your thoughts and patterns of behavior that you, need, you know you need to change? Do you look similar to everyone around you in the week? Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on your new self. And we mustn't worry if our biblical worldviews are becoming unfashionable because we live for an audience of one. Only his view counts. Obedience to his word. And this lordship question comes around again. What are you looking for? Are you looking to escape hell? Are you looking for a warm, fuzzy feeling? A good environment with friendly people? Hey, you might even be here for a school place so I can sign your form. Or do you want a Lord in your life? Someone who you are willing to follow and obey no matter what. No matter what the cost. Many people will love Jesus for being the saviour, for receiving his grace and love. We love that, don't we? We love to hear about grace and love. But when it comes to him being Lord, it's an entirely different matter. God wants us to obey him. We're called to follow him and him be our master. But people do not believe because the heart is hardened. The heart has become callous and rock-like. It's similar to the parable of the sower. Jesus spoke of the stony ground and some seed fell on the hardened path. The seed couldn't sink into it. So immediately the seeds were eaten up by the birds. And this picture we have reminding us throughout Scripture is the condition of the heart is always put before us as the ultimate trouble with man in sin. But in Christ, we get a new heart. Remember what it says in Ezekiel 37. He talks about a new heart. Also, I will give you a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. This gospel, the good news, seems foolish to those who forsake faith and rely on their understanding. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And this is crucial, I would say even more so for the younger generation. And I'm going to put that as 35 and under. Well done if you've reached into that group. Probably 35 and under, you will be facing pressures that myself and others did not face. There is something you will have to fight for, the unchanging truths of Scripture, the holiness and righteousness of God. And that is, there is a large number of you over there, and this is something you will have to fight more than I will. I am getting old. But we can't, ex as well, expect people to come with wise and persuasive words. Oh, if we can just put it this way, people will come in and believe. No, we need the power of the Spirit to move. We need to trust in the power of the gospel to change hearts. 
It is the power of God to change hearts and never lose confidence in it because that is what will change people. The power of God unto salvation is the gospel. And when it's declared, that means we have to speak it, lives change. We expect the spirit to move as the gospel is preached. That is why the gospel is so important to us. That's why we'll never stop preaching the gospel. But on every opportunity, we preach the gospel. It's to change hearts. It's the power of God. And let's finally look at this last section. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The gospel, the good news, will seem foolish to those who forsake it. And lying, bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, bringing disruption, it all damages unity that we were talking about last week, creates conflict, destroys trust. And instead, the, the Bible always gives us an alternative way to live. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And there are lots of examples we can talk through here, but it is never too late to stop sinful patterns of behavior or actions in your life. We should never leave it late to repair and restore relationships. And there does tend to be another pattern in today's society, which is unforgiveness. We've seen in that in the cancel culture world. We... We must be the most kind and forgiving people in the planet. We must forgive. Do you remember the end of the Lord's Prayer? A bit that people tend to stop reading at the end. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. Forgive others as your heavenly Father has forgiven you. If you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you. So let Christ transform your heart. Sometimes we want to hold on to bitterness and anger. It feels good for a moment. But let Christ be the judge. Let Christ be the judge. I remember feeling a real sense of injustice over situations in my life. Desperately wanting to tell the truth of what happened. But knowing only that would bring more upset and damage. I, I was feeling muted. But God spoke so clearly to me about letting him be angry about what needs to be angry about. Depend on him for justice and not to seek my own. 
But the image of Jesus standing silent before his accusers was so powerful for me at that time. And we should. As we looked at, actually, in the Fruitfulness on the Frontline course, one of the, probably the best discipleship track, um, <laughs> about how we should speak. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. It's very important how we speak. We should use our mouth to bless, not to curse. It's so easy to jump on the bandwagon and criticize people. Even more so, again today, keyboard warriors everywhere. Easy to give your opinion, isn't it? Done. So easy to speak badly of others when everyone else is. But we should try and think the best of others. Do you do that? You always try and think the best of others. Not always assume the worst. You know, nobody goes into work to purposely do a bad job. I don't believe that. And we have a powerful weapon, James says, that can set a whole forest ablaze. And it's dangerous. And it can damage and cause harm to others. And that is our tongue. So we have to be careful how we speak. Use it to bless. How can you change the culture and the, the attitudes in your situation? Don't let bitterness get the better of you. It can only lead to sin. There's that phrase on um, one of the Alpha videos, Nicky Gumbel talks about uh, bitterness and unforgiveness. is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to suffer. But forgiveness is not letting people off the hook. It's about letting him be the judge. Let us be those submitting to the lordship of Christ. Let him change us from the inside out. We don't take the good bits which suit us and leave out the rest. He's not our cosmic butler who we call upon for emergencies. Oh, Lord, help me in this. Oh, Lord, this is happening. You need to put off the old and put on the new. Tim Keller, author, pastor in Manhattan, said that when he, he started to put off the old and put on the new in stages of his life, and I think that's probably the same for me, I had to slowly remember, I don't do that anymore. I don't live like that anymore. I don't do this. I don't speak like that. But he said there was this moment when he heard this description from a teacher in Bible class, and the teacher said, let's assume the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of this sheet of paper. If that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Then the teacher added, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. Yet Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. The teacher paused and looked at her students and said, now this is the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? If Hebrews 1.3 is right about the radiance of his glory, how he upholds the universe by the word of his power, 
Oh God, we must submit to you and your ways. He is not the vitamin add-on to just improve little bits of our life. He's Lord and Saviour. This life is not an easy path. It's the narrow one that not many take. The life of holiness is not a condition that we drift into. We're not passive spectators of God's sanctifying work in our life. We have to purposely put away from us all conduct that is incompatible with our new life in Christ. To put on a lifestyle compatible with it. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by continually rebelling against God and sinning. And whenever we sin with the Spirit in us as believers, the Holy Spirit grieves. Put off the old life, put on the new. And let me ask you this question one more time. Do you want Jesus as Saviour? Or Lord and Saviour. And realise and awaken to the times that we are in. Jesus is after a radical, faith-filled, obedient people. Not nice people. Not moral people. Kingdom people. Every area of your life. 